Coming up on this week's show, the Console Wars documentary is here. More clues that Microsoft is buying Sega. And we talk Team 17 to Hollywood with Chris Blythe. This week's show is brought to you by Pax Coffee. Flexible coffee plans delivered to your door. Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 243. Your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. Me, Ravi Abbott. And me, Joe Fox. And a very warm welcome to this week's show, where for the next hour or so, we're going to update you on all the goings-on in the world of retro gaming and technology. And of course, we're going to be joined, like we are every week, by a very special guest. Now, we've been really hyped about this interview that we're going to be doing this week because we're all big fans of Worms. I mean, I've got memories of playing the original Worms on the Amiga back in the day and then Worms Deluxe with my brother. It was always a game that, you know... Caused a few brotherly wars, I've got to say, and a few um, four-letter words were occasionally let out in our bedroom as kids. <laughs> that reminds me, you literally just made me have one of my earliest memories. I used to play Worms uh, on Amiga at a friend's house with my older brother, and he used to batter me at it, and I used to go home and draw the levels and where I was going to try and put my Worms, <laughs> like as if that would help. <laughs> I, I, when they all randomly generated anyway. Yeah, every time exactly. You I used to know some Worms champions, so they would Ooh. play online and they'd have like a, a Worms league and they'd have like a UK Worms team and stuff. It was great. That's amazing. <laughs> well, today we're going to be uh, talking to someone who's actually had a really interesting career. Not only did he start at Team 17 during the height of the Worms era, I mean, he actually joined when it was still Total Wormage. That was the original name of Worms, wasn't it? And then it was that era when, you remember, everything suddenly went like, FMV, didn't it? And we got consoles that could suddenly stream animation and movies and everything. And he was behind a lot of that as well. And then he actually moved to LA and he went to work for James Cameron's visual effects company. And you may have seen him on Christian Simpson's YouTube channel when they recovered a lot of that material from his old Amiga 4000. So today we're going to be joined by animator, director, graphics legend and Team 17 superstar Chris Blythe to get that incredible story. I mean, we cover so much in this interview don't we? Yeah, it's really interesting because actually you talk about like FMV and that's pretty much standard on consoles now and you really need it to tell the story and the narrative. But back when Chris was doing it, my God, it was really early on. And, you know, a lot of these formats didn't actually exist and it was just as CD-ROM was coming through. So, you know, having videos playing before your actual game was a, a real kind of pioneering thing. And this is a really interesting interview about it. And I think what I loved about the work that he did is it was actually really good quality. Because I remember a lot of the early FMV. I mean, I always remember the one that was uh, on before Cannon Fodder on the CD32. And you had like, you know, all the sensible boys it like dressed in armor uniforms. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, a lot of it was very naff and just the office staff doing it. But actually, you know, the standard for early FMV that Chris did at Team 17 was really high. And I think it's just great that we're talking about Team 17 again. I mean, we did an episode, I was looking back, with Martin Brown. And that was episode number 52 back in January 2017. So I think it's long overdue that we revisit a bit of Team 17 and Worms. So really looking forward to this one. Chris Blythe will be our guest on the show in around 15 minutes from now. Now, lots of news stories to talk about this week as well, including another follow-up to a previous show. We did an episode about 18 months ago with Blake Harris talking about, obviously, his book, Console Wars. And we all know that it's been kind of in talks. And this story's changed quite a bit 
over the years. You know, originally it was going to be a movie, then it was going to be a miniseries, but now a documentary for Console Wars has landed on CBS in America. Yeah, so they've actually released a trailer. We, we haven't been able to see this documentary yet, but I'm sure it'll be out by the time we've actually finished recording this. And uh, it looks really interesting. Now, Blake wrote this book, Console Wars, and it's all about Nintendo versus Sega. You know, that was one of the huge console wars. And the kind of difference as well between Sega Japan and Sega America, they were having their own little internal console war. And this has been made as a documentary, but also it was going to be made into a film. And Seth Rogen had a huge interest in this project and what's happened is they've released this documentary and it looks like this mini series is actually getting done at the moment with uh evan goldberg as well who was the guy that did uh super bad and the ali g show now i've looked at a lot of kind of reviews of this because there's been some preview versions that have gone out to a american journalist and they're saying that this is actually really funny for a gaming documentary already, it's got that kind of really funny vibe to it. So just to get my head around it, so, because I was a little bit, I was reading, you guys were talking about it earlier on in the group chat, so I was like, right, okay, so this is the series. Is the film, so sorry, is the, this is the documentary, is the series still happening, do we know, or is that kind of up in the air? Because that the series, as far as I know, that's actually going to be like a, a scripted kind of like drama, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Um, c- CBS in... 2019 we're talking about how okay. they're going to do a follow-on series after the documentary a, a scripted series like you said yeah, yeah. so yeah. and i put a tweet out which was saying oh this looks good are we going to see a little mini series and jake blay harris liked it so you know there you go that, that might be proof. yeah i i do get the confusion though because i mean essentially there's been three different projects all with the name console wars and yeah looking at the the trailer here which we'll talk about in a second but all the youtube comments are essentially people arguing about you know it was never going to be a movie it was always going to be just a documentary so there's been a lot of confusion around this but i mean looking at the trailer which is all we've seen at the time of recording this um it actually lands on cbs today we're recording this on wednesday uh, but i actually think i mean all the usual suspects are in there you've got tom kalinsky al nilson it does look like you know as you'd expect the story of sega and nintendo from the people that were involved in it the only thing i think is it's actually quite unfortunate timing that obviously a lot of people have kind of seen all this on high score on netflix in the last month i i just think that's going to be the way that it is from now on because there's so many gaming documentaries coming out and to be honest i'm happy to have a choice of lots of different documentaries rather than nothing you know and uh i think it's going to be totally different because kind of the 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 drama behind it and the 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 main thing that i found interesting about that whole console was was the kind of confusion where you had the 32x being released by sega usa and then japan we're releasing the Saturn at the same time. And it's like, yeah. what, what is going on here? And they weren't talking to each other. So I think it is going to be very different. Yeah, and I think, you know, if you're interested in kind of the backstory of that, when we've had Tom Kalinske, we've had Al Nilsson on the show before, we've had Blake Harris. So if you do want to find out more about those stories, I mean, we have episodes that you can check out in the past. I mean, like you said, Ravi, there's never too much of this content out there. I mean, I'll lap it all up. I'll be watching it, absolutely. So if you want to check out the trailer, um, I'll put that as a link in our show notes at theretrohour.com. Now, here's an interesting uh, little development from Nintendo. The Game & Watch is making a comeback. Yeah, this this I found this really interesting. So I saw this a couple of weeks ago, but we didn't get around to talking about it on last week's show. 
So the Game & Watch is coming back. Uh, it's up for pre-order at the moment, coming out on November 13th. Um, for those who don't remember, the Game & Watch is like the kind of original Nintendo handheld with like the really bad kind of like black and grey LCD screen. Um, is it LCD? It's not LCD screen. <laughs> liquid grey? It might be an LCD. It yeah, might be an old school LCD. Um, yeah. It's an old screen, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. So um, There's a Mario one coming out, which has already sold out on the Nintendo UK shop, which I thought wow. was really interesting for £45 a unit. Um, but it's still available on Amazon and game for £50. Uh, so good one, Amazon and game. Um, but what I thought about it was, is I thought it was going to be like a series of the Game & Watches because obviously they kind of like, they were just one game on the Game & Watch. And it'd yeah, be, no cartridges, was it? Couldn't change them. No cartridges or anything like that. Um, but interestingly, this has actually got Super Mario Bros. on it. Super Mario Bros. The Lost Levels, Ball, the Mario version, and a digital clock on there. So, so the <laughs> that sold game, me the clock. The clock sold me as well. I think it's because the originals all had a digital clock built in onto them as well. Right. And when they came out, like in the early eighties, I think that was quite a big thing still. <laughs> but I think what's interesting is they've not they've essentially put two NES games on there, and then have Ball, which was like the original kind of like ball game, which was on it, you know, on one of them. So I think it's weird that they've done that. So it's kind of like. For me, obviously, they're saying like, "Oh, the Game of Watch is back, and it's like a re-release, like kind of like the SNES Mini and the NES Mini." But it isn't at the same time because they've put NES games on it. Does that make sense to me? Yeah, yeah. So I, I, I've always liked the look of them as well. Cause, I mean, I occasionally see them in CX. You know, what yeah. and see one in the winner, the one like you know, bloody hundred and fifty quid or something for it. Yeah. Normally. Um But these are actually they're quite affordable. I mean, what's UK pricing on this thing? So, so I know it kind of converts to around forty pounds. Uh, Forty nine ninety nine. So yeah, okay. so they were forty five on Nintendo Shop, but they sold out. So they're fifty quid, still available on Amazon for for forty nine ninety nine, and from Game for forty nine ninety nine. You know what? I think it's good that Nintendo are looking back at their mm. older titles and they're showing more interest in it and they're actually producing these products and to be honest looking at it you know it's probably pretty easy for them to do and yeah. you know with the situation with factories and producing big consoles and stuff at the moment it might have kind of just been a very easy score just to get the game and watch done it's in a really simple square case square box you know yeah. it's a uh, 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 easy one to get out and it and it gets that nice little nostalgia hit for fans you know yeah absolutely and i think you know they have got an attention to detail with it like the packaging on it looks really really nice like really nice glossy golden box and stuff so, so they haven't just chucked it out you know here's a cheap kind of you know thing for your auntie to buy for christmas it's a nice collectible yeah it does kind of seem like this is done for the fans doesn't it it's, it's not just a quick cash grab yeah, by the looks of it. So, so I mean, it's interesting that they're actually going back that far as well, because obviously we had the NES and we had the Super Nintendo, and everyone was like, the N64 is going to be next, and obviously we still haven't seen that. We're kind of going back to the early 80s. <laughs> yeah, now we've got and... the Game & Watch. <laughs> yeah, do, do you think we'll get uh, Nintendo card games, like their old original card games <laughs> they reprinted? They would sell. Well, they would oh, sell they would, they they Definitely, and that would be very easy to do, wouldn't it? Just probably yeah. quite funny. Or like the, um, the boxing glove on the spring thing. But they did in like the seventies. <laughs> the like love that. tester, <laughs> yeah, the love tester and stuff. We're all just crying out for the N sixty four. We just get all the old toys. 
You know, I think it would be a massive seller if they did it. Imagine like an updated, nicely packaged version of the original Game Boy with Tetris and everything. I think that yeah, would sell that'd out. Yeah, that would be a good one. That would you be you good just one. need a love, a love and COVID tester uh, combined. <laughs> 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 You've scored. Officially licensed from Nintendo. <laughs> yeah. You're getting hot. Is it just you're feeling a bit sexy or is it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> is it COVID? <laughs> So, uh, yeah, available for uh, $49.99 or probably around 500 quid from your favourite eBay scalper. So, uh, yeah, they're out very soon. Very good work, Nintendo. Now, we obviously talked a bit about console wars at the start of the show. We're going to be chatting about movies with our guest Chris Blythe in a bit as well. A bit of a movie theme to this week's episode. And we thought that it might be a good time to do a catch-up on a previous interview that we did. Now, a couple of years ago, we spoke to Zach Weddington, who was actually behind one of our favourite films, The Brilliant Viva Amiga. And also we had him on to discuss his upcoming new movie that at the time was called Welcome to Arcadia, documenting 100 years of arcade history. And being that it is just about to launch on Kickstarter, we thought we'd welcome on two of our favourite people in the world, Zach Weddington and Amiga Bill, Bill Winters, to get a quick update. Welcome back to the show, guys. What's up? Thanks so much, guys. Yeah, you're you're two of our favorite folks too. So it's a, it's a pleasure to be back on. Now, obviously, we've had you both on individually in the past, but it's great to have you on together. As I know you're working on this new documentary, and Zach, when we did that episode, which I think was back in 2018, quite a while ago now, it was called Welcome to Arcadia. Then you've renamed it. It's now called Arcade Dreams. So for those that might have missed that episode, give us a little bit of an update about where you're at right now and what kind of the premise is behind the documentary. Sure. Yeah, it's um, it's a multi-part documentary series, and we're uh, we're examining the evolution of arcades and games throughout the whole 20th century. You know, up until today. I originally got the idea I was going to do a documentary about the history of Sega, and um, was just looking around online and and came across these videos of these fascinating Sega games from you know the 1960s and 70s you know, that are fully like electromechanical. They're not video at all. And was just struck by how cool they were and how much they reminded me of my favorite Sega games in the 80s and 90s. So um, I just, I realized that there was a whole history of arcades and arcade games that I didn't know anything about. And um, yeah, decided to just go all in on this, this kind of comprehensive look at the history of arcades. But yeah, Sega have a huge connection with arcades and they're even kind of making them today. And I I always remember if you look at like video games, it's always been try and get that kind of arcade perfect version. So there's a huge connection between arcades and the kind of gaming industry. Yeah, I mean, we've we've got some fascinating people who can speak to that. Um, We've got we've got people like uh, George McAuliffe. He created and, and managed some of the biggest arcade chains in the United States and um, yeah, we, we, we've got some people that, you know, don't typically get interviewed for this kind of thing that are more kind of behind the scenes people, um, as well as uh, as some pretty interesting names. Like we got this guy, Ed Freeze, you know, he invented the Xbox and he was just, um, you know, he, he got his start with video games, you know, in the early 80s, making his own, uh, you know, PC games and stuff. He's just an arcade fanatic. And so he's going to be able to speak to the history. Of course, we've got people like Eugene Jarvis, right? He's a you know, really renowned developer. If you've never, you've never heard of him, look it up, you know, games like Defender, Robotron, Cruising USA, Smash TV, one of my favorites, Uh, just a whole list of people. If you go to arcadedocumentary.com, just check out our website and see, you know, who we're featuring. You can take a look at the team. There's a trailer there. And of course, we're live on Kickstarter and you'll find the link to that. 
Well, Bill, obviously people are going to know you from your incredible YouTube channel, The Guru Meditation, and your really popular Twitch streams that you do as well. And I know that you met Zach when he was working on Viva Amiga and helped him out with that. And professionally, you're an Emmy award-winning director of photography, a cinematographer as well. Is that how you ended up getting involved in Arcade Dreams as well? Exactly. That was, you know, a long time ago. I love documentaries. It's one of my one of my favorite genres to work in. And years ago, I was like, uh-huh, I wonder if anyone ever made a documentary about the Amiga because, you know, Amiga is also one of my passions. I love the Amiga computer. So I just started Googling, you know, Amiga documentary and then up popped Viva Amiga. And I saw the Kickstarter was already finished and it was, you know, like a year or two old. And I was like, oh, I bet I bet this guy is uh, all done with his film. But just in case, let me reach out and see if there's any way I can help him. So I reached out to Zach. It turns out he was just finishing up and he needed uh he needed one more scene for the film he needed like the the sad part like the the end of the amiga scene so um my friend anthony and i you know anthony from the guru meditation we were like we know this great location where there's like a a rundown old shopping mall (laughs) we can put we can put some you know yellowed amigas out in front of this rundown shopping mall it would be a great backdrop to kind of show you know the end of commodore and the end of um so it wasn't the end of amiga like who knew that but it was the end certainly the end of commodore oh i broke my heart that scene yeah (laughs) So, so we did that scene. I sent it off to Zach and he really liked it. And, um, and, and Zach and I have just become great friends ever since. You know, we, of course, we love Amiga, but we also love arcades. We love video games. And, you know, we, we're very similar. We both grew up at the same time playing video games and experiencing, you know, the late 70s and 80s. Uh, so Zach and I have a lot of common. And, uh, you know, just outside of Amiga, Zach and I have become great friends. And it's just uh, it's a pleasure to help him with this film. And uh, I just can't I can't wait to get into the arcades and shoot more. It's just been it's been a blast so far. Yeah, Bill's really modest. I mean, uh, his work is fantastic. He's working, doing a lot of Netflix documentaries right now. I know you, you shot the uh, Epstein, Jeffrey Epstein documentary that just came out not too long ago. And um, yeah, I mean, I I love working with Bill. And so we've just been kind of working in the background for the past couple of years, you know, uh, when we can on it, not asking for any money. I've, I've funded the project myself up until now. And um, yeah, yeah. Uh, we, you know, we've advanced things to a point where, yeah, we're, we're ready to, you know, get the rest of it shot. We're about 40% of the way shot, a lot of development work done. We've been working on everything in the background that we can. And uh, yeah, n- now we're, um, we're ready to, to turn it loose with the Kickstarter. We've got all kinds of cool rewards, lots of custom artwork. Um, we just, we just signed another artist on board. His name is Zombie Yeti. He works with Stern Pinball. And um, his artwork is amazing. He just did the Avengers pinball machine artwork. So we're going to have custom artwork from him as well as, you know, all the, the normal stuff, T-shirts, you know, stickers and pins and all that, that kind of swag, uh, you know. And some of the stuff will be signed, actually, you know, by people in the film. So we're, you know, we're super excited for, for people to take a look at that cool stuff. And then, of course, get the rest of the film done. We're, we're, we're going to be working on it nonstop all through, you know, the rest of the year and next year. And I love just how comprehensive the history is that you're going to be covering in the documentary. You know, 100 years of arcade history. And last time we spoke, Zach, you were telling me about these mechanical arcade machines that are going to feature in the movie. And I had no idea that arcades had even been around that long. I mean, for you, Bill, what's been like some of the most interesting things that you've been shooting? Uh, it's just been amazing. You know, like the thing I love most about working on documentaries is is the things are the things that I learn. And of course, I grew up in arcades, you know, playing Pac-Man and Donkey Kong in the, in the 80s and moving on to like Street Fighter in the early 90s. But I, I didn't even know about this whole world of, of mechanical arcade machines um, and, you know, the, the things that are pre pre video game. I wasn't I knew what pinball was, but I was never that into pinball. So this has got me into pinball. And uh, these these mechanical arcade machines are great. I love shooting 
mechanical arcade machines and pinball because they're actually they're physical devices and the machinery involved in them is just it's visually stunning and it's also just incredible um, how it works. And it's nice to shoot something that has three dimensions. You know, when you're shooting a video game, a video game is just on a flat screen. So it, there's a lot of challenges to, to, to portray that on screen. But when you get to shoot a three dimensional object, like a mechanical arcade machine or a pinball machine, there's just so much you can do um, with the lighting and with macro lenses and with telescope lenses to like really, really bring it to life and really show them in their best light on the screen. So that's just been, it's just been a great learning experience. And it's been like really nice to shoot some, uh, some three-dimensional objects as well. Yeah, that's really the thing. We, we put you inside the games of the past and inside the arcades as well. You know, we've got these reenactment scenes where we're, you know, we're putting you in arcades of the fifties, sixties and seventies all the way, you know, up until today, it's very visually, you know, visually exciting film. And um, yeah, you know, the structure we, we've laid out, it's a just a roller coaster ride through this whole history and evolution of games. Yeah, you know, there's already been quite a few documentaries about traditional video games, Pac-Man, Space Invaders, and they've been they've been awesome. But I haven't seen much about the mechanical machines. And that's uh, one of the things that really attracted me to this project. It's, this is a great learning process. And I want to bring these machines to life and you know share them with folks who had never heard of them before. Yeah, I think for me, that is one of the things I'm most excited about. You know, hearing these stories, many of which I imagine have never been told on film before. So everyone is going to get something out of this. The definitive documentary revealing the 100-year history of arcades and arcade games. As you guys said, the website is live right now, arcadedocumentary.com. Going live on Kickstarter very soon as well. And it's all a pleasure to catch up with you guys thank you zach and bill for coming on and giving us an update thanks dan thanks ravi love it you guys really appreciate this keep up the great work we love the retro hour now, before we chat to Chris Blythe, who's coming up in just a moment, just time to talk about this. Microsoft, it seems, have been on a bit of a shopping spree recently. Yeah, this has been all over the place. And, you know, I don't know if it's to do with the pandemic or not. I think there might be a few companies kind of cashing out at the moment. But Microsoft has basically bought ZeniMax, who are a parent company of lots of companies. I think it was like 28 game studios. And they actually owned, like, IPs like Commander Keen, uh, id Software's in there as well. So you've got like Doom, you've got all of the original titles, Wolfenstein, and Quake. it's re- Quake, yeah. And it's really interesting because John Carmack, uh, the coder of Doom, actually just tweeted, "Great, I think Microsoft has been a good parent company for gaming IPs, and they don't have a grudge against me. So I might be able to re-engage with some of my old titles." So that itself is interesting news because, you know, we'd love to see some old titles come back. But also, people have been losing it over Sega as well. There's been a few rumors going around that Microsoft might be buying those guys up. What do you think? I think, I mean, I think it's a bold move from Xbox, from Microsoft. I mean, they've spent, what, like $8 billion or something like that, $7.5 billion acquiring acquiring all this. And obviously, like you said, they've got uh, Bethesda, uh there which is obviously just you get skyrim and everything like that elder scrolls as well but yeah the sega one man we thought it won't go away this story will it it won't go away will it and you know ravi was sending over some of the pictures earlier on you know they they announced the uh the clean simple still iconic uh sonic blue controller and people are like underlining the letters like it spells sonic (laughs) but also the the color of it someone's opened it up in photoshop and used the color picking tool and actually the color code is the exact same color as sega blue yeah so and the rumor is they've either bought sega or i've read konami as well 
Mm. So we'll see. But didn't Microsoft tweet or something that they wanted to get into the Japanese gaming market more recently? Well, obviously, after the bought Zenimax, I mean, we know that they're kind of on a spending spree at the moment. Mm. But yeah, there has been talk that, you know, because the Xbox has never really been a major success in Japan. No. So I think, you know, really at the moment, it does seem like, you know, that they're moving in that direction and buying Sega would actually open the door to that market, you think, for them too. But interestingly, Sega have also been tweeting a few what people think are cryptic clues. For example, Sega of Japan actually tweeted a picture of a lady lying down face first <laughs> on a table with her arms crossed over a box. So some people are saying this is Xbox. That's uh, what, what the clue means. Uh, what I want to know is what that tweet actually says in English because I've not seen what yeah. it actually translates to. Because it's of... actually, yeah, well, there is a translation on this article here. Okay. It says, the only bit I can see is this is a good place on a desk. Oh, when, so when's the Tokyo Game Show? Because apparently that's going to be when it's announced. Well, it's this weekend. Is it so... this weekend? What, what, what do you guys think of this then? Because like, I, I think Sega were doing well. They were sitting on their own feet again. They were releasing know. titles that people wanted. Like, I, think, I mean, if they came along... Is this an attack on Sony? And Are they doing this just so they can have tons of Xbox exclusives and just uh, kind of pull the rug out of uh, under the PlayStation, you know? I personally think, I mean, we all know, obviously, we're the retro hour, we're getting a bit modern here, but the PS4 crushed the Xbox One in terms of sales. Mm. Um, and like you say, Xbox is just really struggling with that Japanese market. So I think Ravi's right. I think Microsoft are really worried about the future of Xbox. So they are just going in and just trying to buy all these exclusives. So they can just be like, look, there's a new, here's a new Sonic game, here's a new Fallout game, here's a new Quake game, here's the new Doom. Doom's been doing really well recently. So Doom 3 of the new series is only going to be on Xbox and stuff like that. I think that's what they're trying to do. And then that obviously makes people, you know, that, okay, you've got your console sellers there, you know, but then also in Japan, if those people want those games, they have to buy Xbox. So I think that is what they're trying to do, but they are spending a lot of money and hopefully it pays off for them. And but, maybe the Switch as well. Like, you know, mm, Sonic Mania was huge on the Switch. If, if they were like, okay, Sonic Mania 2 is going to be an Xbox exclusive, that might take a bit yeah. out of that market as well. Yeah, that is very true. So I think, you know, obviously they've got a lot of money behind them still, even though, it, I mean, it still sold really well, but just compared to the Switch and PS4. Oh, they've, they've managed to basically pull themselves back with a yeah. Microsoft Azure and uh, yeah. the company's in a, a good position to do this. But yeah, I think this is all about the future console Sorry. wars, actually. Yeah, and yeah, that, I, mean, I was going to say, that's what it comes back to. It comes back to console wars, but I think they're yeah. going all or nothing, I think. Yeah, and I mean, we've got the Tokyo Game Show this weekend. Sega and Microsoft are both there. Mm. Sega's actually doing their 60th anniversary um, celebration there this weekend. So if it does happen, I mean, you know, the timing for a massive announcement like that will be amazing. But some people are saying, you know, Microsoft won't have the money after paying $7.5 billion for uh, ZeniMax. But I'm looking here. Microsoft are currently worth, as of 2020, uh, $301.3 billion. Yeah, they're doing very well. But I, yeah. I must say, guys, I, I'm feeling a bit dirty talking about all this kind of modern stuff. Really. <laughs> <laughs> to retro. Yeah, no, well, I mean, that, well, that's the thing. I mean, if, if they do buy Sega, then we could be seeing stuff like, you know, people saying, here, Jet Set Radio, yeah, uh, Crazy yeah. Taxi, Echo mm. the Dolphin, you know, mm. all these franchises that, for some reason, Sega just seem to, seem to sit on them a lot of the time and don't do anything with them but I think if Microsoft are going to spend all that money they probably will want a new crazy taxi game out on the Xbox you know because I know people will lap it up if they do or they so. could just buy it and kill it 
Yeah, like, I would, you, you never know. know. They, could <laughs> they, they, they could just leave rare. it. They could do what they did to Rare, and it's just like they buy them and then they just put out like, a, oh, here's Sega Replay for yeah. <laughs> Xbox Series X or something. So well, bearing in mind that they're about to pay about fifty billion for TikTok, so they've got money to throw oh, around. Bloody hell. Day, so. <laughs> <laughs> so we shall see. I mean, by the time the show comes out, we might know. Um, and obviously, if it does happen, we'll be talking about it on next. They're week, gonna so. buy Commodore. <laughs> I'm sure they could afford that right then we're going to be chatting to Chris Blythe in just a moment now before we do I just want to take a quick second to give a big shout to our amazing sponsor who've supported this week's show our very good friends at Pat Coffee and actually I've got a cup of Pat Coffee here with me you know actually me I get through so much coffee every day and there is just something about having a quality cup of coffee you can't beat freshly roasted coffee and uh, Pat are actually they're a speciality brand who don't sacrifice quality for the sake of profit. It's 100% specialty grade, checked over and over and roasted fresh just before you order, ground moments before it's shipped. And also, I mean, we're talking about this last week as well, the direct trade. And that means actually they give a lot more money back to the farmers who grow the coffee beans and, you know, most of the, the major coffee companies do. So these farmers actually... Very rare to make a profit, but with this kind of deal that Pat Coffee have got to do. And there's over 15 different roasting coffees that you can pick from at any time. And it's really flexible as well. What I like about this is, you know, for me, who I get through at least eight cups of coffee every single day. Whereas you, Ravi, you probably have like, what, one a week or something? What, one a year. I'm a tea yeah. man. <laughs> exactly, yeah. So. Give me a chai latte and I'm happy there. Depending on, you know, how much coffee you get through, it means you can be flexible with your plan. Whereas most subscriptions, you know, you'll get it on like the first of every month or like every Friday or something. With this, you get coffee whenever you want and you can pause, cancel or change your plan at any time at all. And it's free and fast. You can actually order before 1pm Monday to Friday and your order will be with you the very next day. And it's letterbox friendly. I mean, I've been getting deliveries recently. I don't have to be home. They just put it through the letterbox and it's there when I get back. So I want you to try packed coffee for yourself and obviously we get these amazing offers for you to help out the podcast and try these amazing products because we only allow sponsors that we really believe in and really like so if you want to try packed coffee i've got a discount code that i've got for you please do claim this and get your first bag for just one pound 95 so what you got to do is head to their website packedcoffee.com that's p-a-c-t coffee.com Create your flexible coffee plan and then enter the code RETRO at checkout and you will get specialty coffee delivered direct through your letterbox. So don't hang about. We get so many people going, oh, I missed out on the offer. Do it right now. Head to packcoffee.com, check out with RETRO and create your coffee plan. Thanks to our very good friends at Pack Coffee. Now, at the moment, we've been going through um, <laughs> some... Technical joys over the last couple of weeks. I saw Ravi about three or four times last week. I was back there on the weekend setting his kit up. Joe, you're going to be desk building tonight. I know you've been yeah. busy over the last week. <laughs> We're going to get you on your microphone and set up and everything. You're sounding lovely this week, actually, Ravi, on your new kit. Is it comfortable? Oh, yeah, it's really nice. It, it took a while for us to get it all set up. But, um, you know, slowly, guys, you're going to start hearing the microphones all changing and the kind of whole podcast and improving. And the reason why is because people have been donating on Patreon and it is absolutely awesome. If you support us on Patreon, you can also get an advertising free show as well. And it's really reasonable. There's different tiers on there as well. And all of the money goes back into the show. So we're just going to keep improving the quality, hopefully get some video stuff later. Yeah. 
Absolutely. And it's all thanks to you guys. I mean, it's essentially you're ensuring the, the quality of this show and keeping it going as well. You know, it means that we can keep doing it. Pays for all our costs and helps us upgrade our equipment and everything. Because, I mean, you know, at the start of the year, we're on about getting our own studio, but I don't think that's going to happen anytime soon. So the fact that we can do the show from home in comfort and Joe doesn't have to lie down on his uh, his kid's bedroom floor and whisper <laughs> not to wake the baby up. You know, on a bouncy really castle. <laughs> so thank you so much for all your donations into our Patreon. And, of course, we've got Patrons Hangout coming up this weekend as well. Uh, Sunday evening 8pm UK time um, so I'll put a link on our Patreon page it'd be great to see you there uh, hanging out just chatting about retro stuff with us on Sunday night and of course for making a donation you will get a mention in a future episode in the Retro Hour Hall of Fame like this week thank you to Stephen Marshall Chris Appleton aka Pure Amiga Simon Ralph Rafe Hoffmans and Jonah Naylor who all made donations into the running of the show. And if you'd like to do the same and join us on Patreon, you'll find that right now at theretrohour.com. I'm actually doing a little vlog of um, getting all the equipment set up as well. So I'll be posting that after we get Joe's stuff set up. So you can uh, you can watch that next week. It's actually, uh, yeah, see my, see my trials and tribulations of trying to get it all working. Yeah, see Dan pulling his hair out <laughs> as he's trying to get rid of all the buzzers. Oh, right yeah. then, let's, let's talk about Team 17, get the history of Worms, FMV, talking about Hollywood movies as well with legendary graphics producer, director. He's done so much stuff. Our special guest is Chris Blythe and he's next on the Retro Hour podcast. You're listening to the Retro Hour podcast and it's time to welcome on this week's very special guest. Now we're going to get some stories about one of the biggest video games franchises of all time. Of course, we're all massive fans of Worms. Going to be hearing about that times at Team 17 as well. And a bit more as well with this week's guest, who is an absolute legend in the world of video, animation, graphics, uh, Emmy-nominated, in fact. We'll talk more about that in just a bit. But let's welcome on this week's very special guest, Chris Blythe. Welcome to the Retro Hour podcast. Well, hello there. How are you doing? Very good. Thank you, Chris. And great to have you joining us. Now, um, I was reading, actually, on your website that you got into photography when you were just five years old. Yeah, that's my dad's fault. I, I, I thought it was a pain at first. I was like, oh, I had to sit in this dark room and then all these chemicals that stink and, you know, you'd go out into the countryside and I was just, you know, pointing at a, at a, at a, at a fence and he'd like, look, see, a fence. And I'd be like, yeah, that's a fence. And now, now that I'm older, I go, oh, look, the perspective, it's great. But so it was one of these things that, that I started when I was younger but didn't appreciate until later. Ooh. I think that happens a lot in life. I remember those days, you know, the pre-digital era of photography. I remember trying to do it at college. And I, I was always okay at taking the pictures, but you forget how difficult the process was. I'd always ruin it, you know, at the, the development stage. Something like yeah. getting fingerprints on it or something. It was a lot more complicated than a lot of people think. I realised that, that uh, I, I it, again, it took me a lot longer to understand that I did enjoy it. But in the end result is, I turned out that I'm I'm... I'm, if I somebody gives me a manual camera, I can totally use it. I don't need to think about it. It's second nature. Again, one of these things that you don't realize until uh, until you need it later in life. I just remember going to the shop and getting some dodgy looks off the guy who developed some of my photos. Yeah, the one I <laughs> looking up for quality control. <laughs> well, how did you get into computers anyway, Chris? Again, that was my that was my dad. Really, again, what he what he did was um, he worked at the uh, college. And he was a, a senior lecturer in textiles and design. And uh, he was a bit of a renaissance man himself. He, he was a painter. He did music. He, he did interior design. He did a lot of different things. Big thinker as well. Um, but uh, he brought home this Commodore PET. 
and I was like, oh, look. And it was one, it was the one that had the the tiny keyboard that was very colorful and kind of very 70s looking. Or, or the chiclet you know, keyboard thing. The chiclet keyboard. Yeah. I don't even know what chiclet is, but people say <laughs> chiclet and it's just the word that I've just accepted. But <laughs> the uh, the little chiclet keyboard and then, then, uh, and then the cassette deck, which turned out to be the same cassette deck that you'd get in the VIC-20 later on, just to be, you know, when you opened it up. And that's what started off. And he, and he put down the, the programming book that came with it. And then I just, that was it. As soon as I saw, as soon as I, I was a bit dyslexic when I was younger, still am actually. And, um, and I found what I really liked about it was the font was that spaced out monospaced font. And it allowed me to see really clearly. And it somehow allowed me to think clearer. And then also, because you could change anything afterwards, it just made, it, 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 it was a good fit for me. It was a great fit for my, for my brain. And that's when I started, you know, tinkering and programming and, and um, you know, that, it went from there, really. So the pet seems like, you know, considering you went into graphics, it seems like quite a limited platform to, to learn that on. I mean, did the pet, I can't remember, but did it have those kind of graphics on the keys like the yeah, 64 and the Vic yeah. did as well? Yeah, yeah, it really did. It was bananas. And so you could animate those things too. And that was, you know, that worked. But at the same time, it, um, it really wasn't um, the best at graphics. You could actually, you could, you could pump stuff into different memory registers as well. And so you, you could, you could, you could. It was actually not that bad. It was just slow because I was doing it in basic at the time. And then later on, you know, you try your hand at machine code. And then you realize that there's, you know, by the time I got to Team 17, I realized that there was far, far younger and far better people. And that's when my, my, my thought that was like, hey, I'm good at programming kind of ceased. <laughs> when I got there, it was kind of like, yeah, I do this. And then you realize, it's like, it's like when, you're, when you're growing up and you think, like, I played the bass as well. And when you're younger, you think, I'm the best, best bass player in the world. Nobody can stop me. And you grow up thinking kind of like, hey, I'm good at this. And now you realize there's some, you know, nine-year-old Vietnamese boy on YouTube that has 14 billion viewers and, and he can, you know, just whip your ass <laughs> on anything to do with the bass. It's, it's interesting. So in the same way with, with programming, I really enjoyed programming. But, and I realized that my, my kind of slant was more towards the art side of like what I could get out of it visually. Um, and audio-wise, I like that, but it was far less, far less on the. It was like a means to an end. I enjoyed kind of programming, kind of enjoyed it, but I more enjoy using using applications on a computer than than programming for it. And were you doing all of the typing listings out of the magazines, and then yeah. obviously they never worked. You yeah, also have yeah. to dissect them. And I, try even, and I even did one. I did one for your computer, and it was wow. a, it was a it was that was when I got my I I had a. <clears throat> Don't want to, you know, show off here. I had a 16 kilobyte Vic 20. Very know, posh. It's posh, you know. I had a different walk back then. I had a swagger. I was walking down the road, people, hey, what's up? And I'm like, hey, I've got 16K. You know, like, oh, he's got 16K. Holy crap. You see him? He's so cool. Anyway, um, and I did a Pac Man, uh, but it was smooth scrolling Pac Man. And, um, and that's how you could, you know, you could basically in the, in the video registers, you could animate it and then move it along one, as it were. Uh, well, it's a bit bit more than that, but anyway, it was it was pretty simple, but it worked. And I, you, there was a lot of other codes out there for the actual movement of them, and I kind of just put all that together, but made it smooth scrolling. And uh, yeah, I think I got like two hundred pounds or something, or fifty pounds, or I can't remember. I was going to say that sixteen k RAM pack. I mean, wasn't that like the same price as a machine or something? I remember it, it being really bananas. expensive. It was yeah. bananas. That we, we ate bread for years, or something. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> we had to sell limbs. It was bananas. And then well, I got the uh, the super expansion pack, the, the graphics pack. 
that was that that you could do things like uh, <clears throat> again. I don't want to get too technical for everyone. These things called circles. They're mm. kind of round, and then squares. We do squares. Does anyone know what squares are? Stop me if I get too technical here. Well, I know exactly what you mean about the kind of spacing and letters and stuff because I'm dyslexic as well. And using those older machines, you'd you'd kind of get a feeling with a certain machine, right? I can use this. Um, yeah. Yeah. The Amiga was a really kind of creative machine and had really good possibilities with graphics. What was it like when you first saw that and kind of were you like, this is the machine for me to create? I, I think it was a clear, I, I like the design, first of all, when, when I saw that when the A500, a friend of mine had the A1000 and it was an everything machine because it did audio in a great way. It did video in a great way. There was the Atari ST and all that, but for some reason... And I liked the ST. I thought it was great, but it felt like the Amiga just trounced it. So when the opportunity to get uh, an Atari ST or an Amiga came along, I, I totally just went for the Amiga. It was. It seemed to be a. Um, it it did because, again, I think I'm kind of like my dad, a bit of a Renaissance man. I like to do lots of different things. The Amiga allowed you to do all of those. If you wanted to do music, you could do music. If you wanted to do, you know, video or anything graphics based, you could do that. And there was just so. And then of of, of course there was just tons of games too. So yeah, it was just an obvious choice, and as soon as I got it, um, I got um, an A5, A500 was my first machine, and then I really quickly um, swapped it out as soon as the A500 was it the A500 Plus came out. I yeah. swapped that one out, and uh, and it's that was it. And then as soon as you know, I was it, it was that that then turned into. As soon as the 3D rendering came out, um, there was uh, Turbo Silver and Imagine and Real 3D and all those. I I was basically exercising and doing like, you know, I had some weights in my room for when it was rendering. So it was kind of like this, okay, it's rendering and then I go and do exercising and then come back, <laughs> kind of like keep myself <laughs> from the, the sitting down thing that was happening of, of, you know, trying to keep a balance and not be, you know, trying to find some kind of balance between sitting in front of a computer for hours but still being healthy. <laughs> were you like reading a load of manuals then and stuff because those programs seem pretty complex i, I used to play with d paint but you know the the level of complexity in those uh kind of 3d rendering programs was insane it was crazy and and i think what you found is is that anything that you're getting as feedback felt amazing so even though it was doing like a a, a cube or something and it was you could see it rotating and the and you could see through it as a wireframe that was amazing, and so you got to you got used to looking at it like that. So for years later, when we were animating, and our computers could only do wireframe, your brain got used to seeing that kind of visual representation. Whereas a lot of the younger guys that were coming in were like, "How how can you look at that? You have to how it's you know it would be smooth shaded." I'm like, "Yeah, but you you're missing things from behind that you can see." And I think you you develop an eye. And you accept anything that you kind of are getting with those programs. Some of them were really rudimentary, but back then, when you got like anti-aliasing and things like that, you're like, "Wow, this looks like amazing." So I think you, you, I always assumed, and that there was somebody smarter, and I just had to kind of figure this out. I and back then, I and I think software is different now because I really think there's some really amazing software that's horrible. I think back then, because everything was really had to be really thought about. I always assumed this isn't a bug. This is me and I'm going to figure it out. And I think mm -hmm. that was my, I, I never gave up back then. And I would just keep on plowing through until I figured things out. turns out there were bugs, but you know, there was no over the air updates back then. And it was a <laughs> lot of uh, self-teaching as well. There was no like 12 year old on YouTube where you can just watch a <laughs> tutorial and you know, do it straight That's, away. 
And, and I, I think, uh, in a way, you get into a way of figuring things out, and it puts you at a higher, not higher level, but it, it put you into that mode of, like, just learning and accepting anything that's coming along, and nothing's a problem. So some of the stuff you just, you figured out your own way of doing it, and it might not be the right way of doing it. Um, but... I don't know. It was it was all of it was brand new back then. There was nothing really to look back at apart from like Tron or something to to, to sort of like have a benchmark against. And you know, when when you know when you hear later on and I think there was Amiga Amiga World was really the one that you saw like when people would take renders and then put them onto slides and they would look like resolutionless because <laughs> they were so high resolution when they when they'd render them out and you, there was a there was a cover of uh, of Amiga World that had this flower. It was done by a guy called even Menzies, don't know how I can remember that, and uh, it had this kind of lily, and I remember looking at it and just seeing it, it was a magazine quality, and you saw that, and I'm like, okay, I'm using a different program from him, I'm going to find out what he's using, you know, it was it, it, it was a constant push going forward, and I think uh, I, I really enjoyed those days of, of like exploration. Well, most of us here in the UK, obviously, back then went to Dixon's or somewhere to get our Amigas. That's I was right. listening to uh, an interview that you did on um, a, a podcast called CG Garage, all about CGI and everything. And you actually said on that that you went to Commodore's factory to get your Amiga. <laughs> so this, <laughs> what, what, what happened there? Well, what happened was, it wasn't as straightforward as that. What happened is, is that I was working... Um, it, very early on in my life, I got an opportunity to to be an electronics engineer traveling, fixing these huge industrial machines, which is another whole story. Sometimes I'd go from country to country to country to country, and then sometimes it'd be a week, sometimes two weeks, and I'd basically be fixing and installing these huge industrial machines. As in the Philippines, and what was really weird was, at that time then, when I got off the airport, I remember seeing adver- advertising uh, and it was using Scala. I recognized it. I was like, oh, they're using Scala. And then on the TV, I recognized, oh, they're using Scala. And then that's when I went, wait a minute, the Amiga factory is here, right? And um, so I wanted to find out about it, so I took a car to it. But when I got there, it was closed. There was nothing open about it. And it was literally looked clean, like recently boarded up. You know, it had clearly been shut down. And I was like, that's weird. So what I did was I went, well, who? I think this is news. And I thought, I'm, I, I need to tell someone. So what I did was I just left a message for Marcus Dyson at Amiga Format. I called him from the Philippines and told him, hey, I'm here. I could do a story about how Commodore's factory here is closed. What's going on? Because at that time, there was some weirdness happening with Commodore. We all knew things were happening, but we didn't realize the factory had closed. Yeah. And I, I, I thought it was kind of like on this cutting edge. And so that's why I reached out to him. And then that ran off the story of when Marcus was leaving Future Publishing and going to, to Team 17. And at that moment, no one knew that. No one, no one at uh, Future Publishing really knew that Marcus was leaving. But I figured it out because on the last Amiga formats, he'd been kind of talking about Yorkshire and Team 17 and Yorkshire and Team 17 all of this time. So I literally cold called Team 17 because I called I called Amiga Format and they said, oh, he, he no longer works here. And I'd been there for, for two or three weeks. I said, do you know where he's gone? And they went, no, no, we don't. Sorry. And so I literally just cold called Team 17 and I went, is Marcus Dyson there? And they went, uh, yeah, he's just walking through the door. And he came, <laughs> wow. he came and he picked up the phone. He went, hello. And I went, hi, it's me, Chris from the Philippines. He goes, how the hell do you know that I'm, no one knows I'm here? And he goes, hey, do you want to come to a party? 
And I went, sure. And then that was it. And then I ended up going to Team 17. <laughs> what? Talk about a lucky phone call. <laughs> oh, I tell you, there's been some weird... I've had a lot of those happen over the years. So did you get your Amiga then, or did you have to sneak through a window or something? <laughs> so, so what was happening was, at that time, when I'd, when I'd actually um, I'd messaged Marcus... I can't remember. I didn't email him, did I? I, met, I left a message with him. And during that time, I was... I'd done a bunch of work and I knew I was going to be back in the UK for a while. And I was literally pondering between um, my uh, getting a PC that was like, it seemed to do everything and be cheap or spend more and get an Amiga 4000. And, um, and I never heard back from him. So when I was in the Philippines, I ordered my Amiga and paid for it. And um, which I don't know how I did. I think I just called them up. What I would do is um, instead of, um, going and um, paying for international charges, I'd go to the business sections of, of, of hotels and just use their fax machine, and it would always work internationally. Anyway, well, that, was my, that was my hack as I did it back then. Anyway, and so I ordered my Amiga, and then by the time I got back to the UK, it had arrived. It actually arrived on the day that I got back. So it was then I started working, doing a lot better renders and better stuff, and from there, actually... Um, when I got invited down to Team 17, that's when I met a guy called John Allardyce, who's a super talented visual effects guy. And um, he really did push the boundaries of, of doing CG um, back then on the, uh, on the using Lightwave. And so from, from that, I, um, after meeting John, he hooked me up with a copy of uh, Lightwave, which was basically a hack that allowed you to use Lightwave without the video toaster. And then so I did a whole bunch of tests and different work and then sent it to them. And then from there, after many, many, many meetings and many visits going down and go down there, they, they, uh, <clears throat> they offered me the job um, of working on the worms, of working on worms. Before that, I'd worked on, on I worked unpaid on uh, Tower Assault. Well, interestingly, like Tower Assault had an FMV intro on the CD32. Right. Um, yeah. How much were you involved with that? Because I remember that was a mix of... CG and live action and uh, a guy even had like an ICP logo shaved into the side of his head and stuff what was going on there oh man that was such an incredible fun time so <clears throat> again that was that was I would say that's that's John Allardyce's baby he did that um, I that was at the time when I was kind of hanging around and so I did some of the voiceover work and 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 there was a part where they feel I, I can't remember if Really super vague, but there's a part where they filmed with it with a with a helmet on, a kind of close up of the eyes, and then there was some other foley and sounds that we were doing, and John was putting it all together. And you know, at that point, then John had a very clear picture in his head what it was going to be like. The only thing that kind of fell down is that all the people that were in it were Team Seventeen employees, and it sounded. I mean, looking back in it now, it looks like sometimes I feel like. <laughs> I want to say, oh, it was intentionally like that. We were trying to be campy and ridiculous. Yeah, because I mean, FMV at that time, it just seemed like because we could finally do it, it seemed yeah. like everyone wanted to do it. And I remember, you know, a lot of companies used just people around the office to be actors in FMV and that. And a lot of That's it did exactly look, you know, yeah, exactly like you said, really campy and stuff. But, it, you know, yeah. it was fun, I guess. It was yeah. fun. I think also the, the, the back then we were limited by budget, time, and technology. I think John was using a PAR card. But I think also for the longer sequences, I believe he was cutting it to tape. He was using two uh, half-inch tape machines or, or, or uh, yeah, half-inch 
uh, tape machines, and um, and he was literally editing like an A B roll editing. Um, there was an there was Ami Edit or something like that. It was an Amiga based tape um, solution, and I think that's what he was doing it on. And then we used Studio sixteen to do the all the audio, and uh, yeah, it was bananas. It just it was it was it was all of it was new. There was another one called Allegiance, which sadly got cut. And it was a funny story. There was a the the guy that ran um, that ran along with uh, Martin Brown and Debbie Bestwick. A guy was called Mick uh, Robinson, and um, but he really thought that just the games. He just thought of games. He didn't think uh, a little bigger. He's kind of thinking of the core stuff, which is understandable. What makes money? It's a business. So I remember when when they came up with this thing called Allegiance. And it was a girl, and they're like, "A girl? Don't you want a guy like a cool guy?" And like, "No, it's going to be a girl running around." And literally, the question was, "Why would you want to see a girl running around when you could have a guy?" And we're like, "Uh." And so, the, the <laughs> character was this girl, and then they canned it. They canned it. Now it had technical problems. It had a lot of stuff that were trying to get figured out. There was a whole bunch of story issues, but I think that it was it really was promising. And then they canned it. And then I think about six months later, Tomb Raider came out. Yeah. Straight after that, and we're like, "Ah." Oh. And that wasn't the, that wasn't the only time that Team Seventeen um, canned something. There was another thing called the the Big Room, and it was this. Uh, Marcus came up with the idea, and it was the whole idea was how about we we look at the demographic of people that buy books, and it turns out there's people that have credit cards are the people that buy books the most. So why don't we make an online store for people to buy books? And the the big the Big Room <laughs> sold thousands of books way early on, and and then again the the management went, yeah, this just isn't our this just isn't our thing. We don't do this. And they said, well, can you let us take it and go somewhere else? And, and it didn't work out. And they said, nah, we're just, we're just going to stop it, I think. And then Amazon came out. It's like, ah. Oh. So the, <laughs> there was a lot of early things that I think Team 17 were really pioneering. And I think that's the spirit that Team 17 started with. It was, you make something really good and you, you do it. You know, when we, were, when we were coming up with the ideas for, for Worms, we were looking at a lot of the old Hanna-Barbera stuff and Warner Brothers stuff for, for all, all the kind of cartoon feeling. But it was great fun coming up with it. And it was a really an open playing field of bring, you know, bring what you've got. Well, some of those videos, as you said, would have taken ages to render, like especially those huge big scenes. Um, how long did it take? And what was the kind of setup that you were using to make a lot of these uh, CG introductions? Well, we um, so with say something like if you take Project X two, that was um, I I had a team of people that I worked with. I had Rory Little, I had Rory McLeish, Mark Taylor, and I had Neil South, and they were uh, just an amazing team. And we we laid out the art room and we made it into this great little room for us to work in. And so we had people that were modeling, we had people that were uh, designing different things, people that were that were doing the shading and and the kind of texturing and then layout and we're doing story and timing and um we, we even did it just all of our stuff like for for project x they wanted it to be this long intro and i felt it actually could have been shorter but they, they were like no let's make it long and big and awesome i'm like right but I, I actually felt it could have been two minutes long not four minutes long but that took um we did we actually did traditional storyboards for that and we you know scribbled them all out and timed it all out and then i used a really new thing back then that was actually on the PC was the was Premiere, which was absolutely awful. Um, but previously we'd been using um, the Perception card on the Amiga, or as the Par card on the Amiga, and um, it had this kind of cue list that you'd actually have to say how many frames you want each segment to run. It wasn't like a non-linear editor; it was like a list. And you say play that one for twenty-five frames, play this one for 
40 frames please and that was your editing you just literally type in the numbers it was and so all the worms ones all of the worms um animations were done in that were done in that way so because of the time that it took to to lay these things out we were super careful about every single frame like we didn't render more than really what we needed and so we had this thing called a um it was called the screamer and what it was was an amiga controlling two risk-based uh, twin CPU machines and inside a machine there was two boards. So it was like four RISC processors. And I think there were R8000s or something like that. And it was super expensive. And I think there was only two. Uh, there, was another, there was another one of these screamers called, uh, and, and Newtech actually used to s- sell it, but then it got the, handed off to a different company to actually sell. So we would get all of our scenes ready and then stack them up in a, in a, in a list um, using ScreamerNet, the, 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 the LightWave uh, system, and then pile them on this thing. Now, if you were going to render it on the Amiga, it would take maybe 40 minutes to render a frame or something stupid like that. Um, and, and then when you did it on this, this these NT workstations, which didn't even have a screen, you literally plugged it in with a serial port and a network cable, and that was it. And, and you would come up with this interface. It would come back in like, two minutes, four minutes, and we're like, oh, my God, we can render anything. We could render the world. <laughs> it was bananas. <laughs> you know, we got way above, you know, we, we, we were, we, and then that again, because you saw that leap of, like, we can, well, remember, let's put it this way. Remember when disks were, like, 1.4 megabytes, like, that was it, floppy disk, and then CD-ROM came around, and it's, oh, my God, it's massive. We can put so much, that that proportion, I don't think we've had those proportions anymore, because now you've got hard drives of, of like, you know, 8, 10, terabytes but you don't like have a simple disk that's a hundred terabytes you don't get that now so so when when you when you saw that contrast in the per, the personal machine and then the rendering machine we we kind of like yeah we can do it, it kind of it lit up your, your imagination of like not thinking that rendering was was a problem anymore but then you know obviously you start doing more better renders and then you're like oh um we know this is going to take a day to render or two days to render but it really was more the animating and the layout. And then also we were restricted back then because we weren't doing compositing. We had to make sure that everything was able to load into the Amiga. And so when we were doing Project X, we were literally on the edge of what could be rendered in memory. We're like, okay, I can't load another building. I can't load anything more because you need to save space for you need to just, there was a limit that you could get to. You know, so there was there was a lot of different things going on, but yeah, they would take the worms ones would take. You know, you'd come up with an idea, you'd storyboard it out, and just drawing. You'd show it's like we want to do this one, and we we did about twelve of them, and they say, yeah, not this one, this one, not this one. Yeah, we'll do this one, and then animating it would maybe take a couple of weeks, and then rendering would be, I would say maybe four or five days, four days of just making sure that everything's right. And then editing would take about another two or three days. And then that was it. And you had 12 of them. So what we did was we we had a deadline of so many months away. And we're like, okay, if we work backwards from there and give ourselves a bit of breathing room between how many can we get done? And we we got them all done that way. We, we planned them all out. Like we have to finish this one by this amount. So we got into, we got into a real routine. And in the same way that we talked earlier on about 3D software and how you just get up to that level of like, it's okay, you get on with it, even though it seems difficult. It, it's the same thing. We got on with it. It became almost routine. 
um, not in a bad way, but it, you got up to that speed. And I think it was great training for, for later in life as well. Well, when you got to Team 17, I mean, talking about worms, what kind of stage was worms at when you got there? Because I know it was um, total wormage at first, wasn't it? Yeah, so Andy had gone around the trade shows and gone to everyone and nobody got it. And then Martin, and I think at that point then, um, Marcus saw it and Martin said, this is it, this is it, this, this, or this. <laughs> then they basically just took him on board. And, um, and so it arrived in a really good state. But what we had to do was get all the menu systems working, make sure it doesn't crash. And then the biggest thing was it couldn't just be in the Amiga. So the majority of the time um, was spent um, making it go cross-platform. Now, nowadays, it's, it's easy. You, 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 know, you, you code it once and you, you port it. And there's, there's obviously lots of tools to do that nowadays. But back then, there wasn't. So even the AI had to be redone and, and, re, and, and, and made small and um, you know, work in different formats. And then, of course, the different resolutions. Um, some, of the, some of the graphics had to be changed. And then there was some, you know, there was some stuff that just literally didn't work. Um, and it even came down to the fact that we were using uh, Motorola processors and the math was different. So you'd literally get different AI. So it was a lot of time. So it arrived in really good state. And then it was fleshing it out and then doing the FMVs and making all that. And, and, you know, and then, of course, even then they were doing different multi-language stuff. So they were doing all these different languages. So, you know, it's the same as when you look at a movie. You've you got to remember it's being, trans, it's being translated and also regionized into 20 or 30 different regions. You know, any bit of writing that's on any Marvel, you know, movie, when it goes there, it gets changed. You know, and there's, there's visual effects for that too. So, so it's, it was really, when it arrived, it was in a great state, but then it had to be industrialized. It had to be ready for different markets and many different formats. And that's where the real work that Team 17 put in and they totally pulled it off because on, on launch day it was 15, 15 platforms. It was mental. Were you like writing the storylines for those FMVs? Because you kind of had to make a narrative around uh, pretty much a kind of multiplayer battle game. Well, on, on Worms 1, um, Team 17 were wanting to hire me after Tower Assault. Even though, again, I was really tertiarily involved in that. I was just helping out and it was like, really cool fun to be doing something like this and then you know going back and and you know showing to my dad and whatever like look at this and he's like oh it's interesting um some people back then again when you're like i'm gonna go work for a games company and they, they were like you mean for kids right like like kids like no it's games it's gonna be massive huh <laughs> anyhow when i worked when i when i got to there for 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 worms i was being brought on to help john so John was had up. We had they they had already got a lot of them figured out. I think out of I think we did. Let's say there was twelve. I can't remember how many there were. And I think he had about six written down and kind of I know what I want to do with them. And then there was other ones that we came up with together. And then there was other ones that he'd had ideas for, but you couldn't finish off. So I, you know we did those. And then all of them needed finishing off. I think he'd only got two done, like actually done done. And then even then we revisited them and kind of tarted them up and did some more. So I was I was I was working hand in hand with John and I were were working together. We both had Amigas and we both had this thing called what was it called? Twin something Twin Express and oh, to uh, transfer files. Yeah, and so we yeah. had it. We had it. And then we had it set up so that it would just go every so often. It was amazing. And this is before. And then I remember there was something happened, and then uh, and uh, 
I did something for Martin. And he goes, oh, that's nice. Thanks, man. What can, I, what can I do for you? What can I get you? And I'm like, I would like a network card. And they went, oh, those are expensive. <laughs> I'm like, I want that. And they went, we will make it happen. And then they gave me this network card. And it was amazing. And I was like, I am now connected to the network. And it was like, wow, that's cool. So for Worms 1, yeah, that was really, John had a lot of them done. But then we really got on well. And we came up with, we we started thinking about the same ways of doing things. And we kind of had a, we got to a real quick kind of um, language visually. And also we knew what each other was doing. It was really good. It was great fun. And then on Worms 2, John had gone into another project. And then on Worms 2, I was kind of on my own, as it were. And so that's when I got, we wanted the graphics to be better. We want everything to be better. So that's when we got more people involved. And the, that's when I, we got um, Rory McLeish, who's an incredible model builder, an incredible artist and great guitarist. And then there was also Rory Little, who was an incredible artist as well. He came from traditional painting and then really, basically, we saw how good he was at the painting. It was like, well, we need to bring that into the digital realm. And he learned Photoshop and Lightwave and modeling and became just incredible as well. And he was called he was called Rory Little. His real name is Rory Little. And Rory McLeish was huge. He's this big Glaswegian guy. And so he was called Big Rory. <laughs> and so there was Little Rory and Big Rory. <laughs> and then there was Mark and there was Neil and, and myself. Well, you actually had um, a cameo in Worms Yourself. You did some of the voices in the game. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I did a bunch of the voices. It's followed me around to this day. I was, I was So I lived in Nairobi for a while. And people came up to me and went, did you work on Worms? I was like, What? I was at a party and literally somebody just walked up to me and said that. And I couldn't believe it. It was, it was this young college kid that was turned out. He's from Nairobi, but he, he, was, he, he, went, to, he went to college in, in the UK. And, you know, but he was from Kenya and he came up to me and, and I don't know how somebody knew. Um, and so it was, that was just really good fun. And, um, and even they're still using them to this day. And uh, which is good fun. But I did I did the Soul Man one. I did the Angry Scots one. I did, You've got uh, to give us a couple of lines. We can't let you go and without okay, doing the, this. So the Scottish one was, I'm going to hammer you. That was one of them. <laughs> the losers are total... Hang on, let me get it right. The losers are total losers. It's a bit lower now than it was, but they were, they were pitched up. <laughs> and then the Soul Man was, I'm a bone out of my head. It was, it was you really just got to pitch them up in your head to about plus 100. That's, and then, what, that's, yeah, all, that's what they did. Like, I'm not doing them any differently now than I did back then. They just did. It was Bjorn Lind did the music. And um, it was really funny because back then, I remember there was, when Bjorn was doing music, there was some people like, yeah, this music just does not work. It's not right. It's not right. And he, he wasn't. He was bang on. He had the feeling and the, he got it all right for everything on that and and i think again it's one of those things you look back on later and, and he made a lot of right decisions and and really made the brand work i, I feel for uh for for worms but yeah so i did the voices for that and then and then even there was you know when you talk about getting it to, to a shorthand i was just about to leave we had finished worms and i was going to florida for a holiday and we'd finished it and then i woke up in the morning and i called martin i went dude we we need an open, we need an intro to the intro. We need an opening thing. And he goes, what do you mean? And he goes, I know what I need to do. I need a, like a guitar intro thing. And he goes, uh, we'll just do it. I'm like, but I'm leaving today. And he goes, can you organize it? I'm like, yeah, I can. All right. So I went in, I called Bjorn and I said, and I got Rory and I went, I need it to go like this, like this. And then, and then bring in the drums and then end with the little, and he went, I know what you mean. I got it. 
I'm on it. And so Bjorn started with that. And he got Rory, who's the, you know, he's the modeler guy. And he came in and did the guitars for it in one go, in one take, in the first take. Wow. And then I went back and I started animating this thing of the worm coming up. And then um, uh, the bit with the, the Amiga intro with the, with the, what it was, with the banana. And then throwing away the banana, the banana exploding. I don't know if you can remember that one. Yeah. It was the, it was the Microprose intro. And then we just did this. We, we, I think, I can't remember. I think it was, it was Mark or maybe Neil that made the, the Micropose yeah. purple and the Team 17 were moving back and forward and all that kind of stuff. And that just started like, that looks good. Just render it, render it. Go, 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 go. And then I started animating this thing. I was animate. I was literally in my clothes for traveling. Like I'm going to be arriving in Florida. I was in my holiday clothes. <laughs> and I literally, in your shorts and vest. <laughs> I was literally, I would, at one point I was like standing at my desk, like leaning over, like I'll be here for two minutes, kind of leaning over, just typing something instead of sitting down because I'm like, well, if I sit down, then I'm here. But anyway, I did this animation and, and then we did that and we edited together really quickly. And then I said, it's going to be fine. It's going to be good. All right, render, 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 render. And then it got put together. And I think, I, I think we got it rendered and done before the end of the day, before my flight, as it were. And it was done. We got it done in a day from the idea. And I came up with the idea in the shower. And then I, I did. And then by the evening, it was done. So in terms of being in a role and then understanding the other people of what they need to do and what we do and how you work together. When I left that one there and I was going on the plane, I was like, man, what a team. And it's like, oh, Team 17. And, but I realized we were in each other's pockets and we got each other really, really well. It was a magical time. Well, at what point did you realize that you had to move on from the Amiga and that you were kind of pushing the machine to its limits? Because I know you did have one last kind of big hurrah on the Amiga. That was obviously Director's Cut that I remember reading was kind of a bit of a gift to the Amiga community that by then, you know, a lot of people had left the platform. Right. But did you kind of realize you had to move on then at that stage? You, you did because it was basic maths. That's all it was. It was just business. The Amiga sales were going down. The Amiga, the interest in the Amiga at that time, not now, is was going down. Everything was jumping onto consoles and PC, and it was just a business decision. It was an it it couldn't be emotional because we went with emotion back then. It was like yeah, we're we're done. But all all the guys that were coding were also seeing the terrific advancements of speed with the graphics cards, and it was simply a lot easier. We weren't worrying about bit planes and all this kind of stuff on the Amiga. So did it have its down bits? Yeah, of course, because doing everything on the PC was, was, there, was there was things that we realized later on that um, were a real pain in the neck. Um, and, but it was just the writing was on the wall, and we had to move with the times. And it, it was not like we wanted to leave the Amiga community. The Amiga community left the Amiga back then. It was there, was there was some diehard kind of people on there, but it just didn't make business sense to have 90-odd people working on Amiga games when they're selling, you know, one-tenth of what the PC games were, were making. And I think the transition to Worms, there was other, there was other uh, games that they did that were PC-based, but, you know, on floppy disk and stuff like that. But then I think the, 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 the sales of Worms on the PC was, the, again, another one of the kind of signs of like, wow, that's really healthy. Yep. And it just just moved that way, and the director's cut. I think um, Andy was young too. I think the company was young. People didn't, you know, if I if I had thought about it better, I would have. We would have liked to get royalties set up and all that kind of stuff. Nobody did that. We were just doing it. So I think you know those the, the relationship between between Andy. I I really don't know what what happened there, but uh, I think that they they were trying to get even Andy to move on, and so let's let's move on. He was like, no, I, I want to do. I want to do one more. So that I think they supported the director's cut, but you know, 
they were doing it with their heart and not really with their with their wallet, as it were. And so the director's cut still is very good, if you ask me, in terms of the way that it works and the way it is interesting because you feel that they're the same until you play the other ones. And you're like, why is this a bit janky and not okay? And it just doesn't seem the same. And then when you go on the yeah, it's, it's my cut, favorite yeah. Worms game director's cut. It's, yeah, it's my it favorite is, ever. It's really slick. It's just really dialed in and slick, and everything works really well with it. Well, talking of kind of modern technology, um, we saw you on uh, Perry Fractic's channel, and he oh, yeah. was kind of Christian Simpson. He was looking at some of your old renders, and he actually re-rendered the scenes using the original white lightwave files upscaled them added a bit of texture yeah uh, w- what did you think of that and were you i think um, it was brilliant i think it was absolutely amazing i mean the amount of time and work that it takes to actually load those things in reconnect them make it all work and everything ah oh, my t- tip my hat to those lovely fellows because they did a great job and i think also as well the the encouragement even from team 17 from from uh, debbie bestwick and, and uh, the, the rest of the guys there just it was just really good it was very heartwarming to see them do that and i think i think christian did a, just a great job you know when you're doing it you don't think it's special you think oh that's that's cool i'm doing this thing that's cool later on you realize oh wow that was a really really that's really really special you know so i think if it if it you know if it warms the cockles and it makes people feel kind of nostalgic and go oh, i remember that and if it makes people feel good great good job i think it's done its job and i think the way that christian went about it and how he did it Bravo. Good stuff. I love that series of videos that you did with Christian. You got your original Amiga 4000, and yeah. I know there was stuff on there from like the set of Apollo 13 it was pictured on as well. I mean, what was kind of the story with you rediscovering this machine, and how did Christian find you then? What kind of happened there? So what it was was, <laughs> so I'm, I'm, I was uh, in the process of um, selling my house and moving to Kenya. Now, I'd actually been in Kenya for many years, but we hadn't realized that we were, I was building a, a TV production studio. And um, we hadn't realized that we were really going to move there, right? So um, I was looking at different people. It's like, who, we need to get, I don't know, I'm not going to bring these Amigas with me. I'm not going to put them in, they've just been in store, they've just been in my shed for years, right? And I thought, I want to give them to someone that will actually have a good home for them or find a good home for them or do something with them. And then I remember literally, uh, I, I can't remember, I was in a hotel and I was watching Christian, I thought, I wish I could give it to this guy, but he's from, he's English, he's from England. How's he going to get, am I going to have to ship them? It's going to be a big pain in the neck. Now, previously, I had contacted the Living Computer Museum, or the the one that's up in Seattle, and they said, um, oh, uh, we're very interested, send everything you've got, and then we'll just put it on display. And I said, oh, is it going to be like, you know, what it is? And they said, no, no, basically, when the one that's on display breaks, we'll just use yours. I was like, oh, that's okay. So just as soon as that one's dead, you're just going to throw it away. You know, it didn't feel like the right, the right place for it to go to. So when I saw Christian's thing, I thought, man, I wish I could give it to this guy. This guy would do something. He'd make something of it, right? And then one of his bits was he went into a store and the girl was American. I was like, wait a minute. What? And, and then I realized, he, that's a Walmart. What is he doing in there? And then I figured out he's in the States. And I was like, oh my goodness, this is nuts. So... I contacted him, and it turns out it was like 40 minutes away from Los Angeles. And so I, I contacted him and said, dude, do you, do you want all these Amigas? I, you could do something with this, yeah? And he goes, wait, what? Is it what? And he didn't understand at first. And then a couple of conversations in, he was like, oh, my God, this is great. Yeah, I'll come down. We'll film it. So I basically had my Amiga 4000, which was my, uh, my, my main machine at Team 17, which is the one that I bought uh, when I was in 
the Philippines. Um, I ordered when I was in the Philippines. It's the same machine. And then I, uh, and it's the one that I did Worms on. It's the one that I did X, um, Project X2 on. And, and, and that's when we traversed into uh, PC and all that kind of stuff. But I still had my Amiga. And I did music on my Amiga, the whole thing. And it was always with me. And it was really funny because when I went to Digital Domain, there was a lot of people that had come from Lightwave and the Amiga. And a lot of them were like, I can't sell it because my whole career has been built on this. And two or three of them were like, if I sell this, bad things will happen. (laughs) And there was a time that one guy let go of his Amiga and then he broke his arm and we're like, see? (laughs) So Never sell your Amiga. Never sell Amiga. So anyway, I held onto my Amiga. But then... When I got to when I got to uh, to digital domain, that I knew that they'd been using them for um, for motion control systems on uh, for Apollo thirteen and stuff, but again they were they, those machines got so hot because they had like all the boards filled up that they had to drill holes in them to make them cool and a lot of the times they'd be without the tops. And by the way, if you see the Amiga two thousand that's in the the making of Jurassic Park book, it doesn't have a lid on it because they'd overheat. So in the same way, they had all these cards in them. So they they wrote software and they made hardware and everything for these Amigas to be these motion control um, systems and playback systems tied to the motion control thing. But um, I just saw them as Amigas not being used because they'd moved on to a different system. So I kind of, you know, going around digital domain, I'd kind of say, oh, what what are you doing with these Amigas? I'm like, well, we're just keeping them there and we might need them. We might not. We'll probably just throw them out. I'm like, throw them out. I said, well, no, well, let me know you're going to throw them out. And they said, why? I said, well, I'd, I'd, I'd like them. And he goes, what for? And he goes, I don't know, just because you don't throw away an Amiga. And he went, huh, okay. And it was John who was the guy that was looking after all the inventory in the, in the, in the camera shop. And um, years went by, and he goes, hey. And he called me, and he goes, and he literally, the time he called me back was maybe three years later. And he called me back like we just had the conversation. And he called me and went, hey, so we're throwing them out. I'm like, throwing what? Hello, who's this? It's John. We're throwing them out. You're throwing water. Oh, John. Oh, John. We're throwing all oh, the Amigas. It took my while to catch on. He goes, I said, well, don't throw them out. Can you place them out? And he goes, we, I said, and he went, I'll very gently put them in the trash. So <laughs> I went out there and he, I said, when is this happening? He goes, in about 20 minutes. I'm like, okay. So they took those machines and I think they said, you know, if there's anything on them, you'll have to format them and stuff. I'm like, okay. I'll do that. Of course I will, yeah. Of course I will. Anyway, I'm very trustworthy. And uh, so <laughs> so anyway, uh, I went out there, and sure enough, there was there was, uh, there was was an Amiga uh, 4000 sitting there with, with holes in it. It looked like bullet wounds. I was like, what are you doing there? Come on with me. I'll give you a better life. So I put them in my car, and then I put them in my shed, and then I thought, I will get to this later. And then life happened. And then, you know, babies happen, things come in the way. And then other projects got in the way. And, you know, and then before I knew it, I'd actually, there was another guy that was getting rid of old consoles, really old ones. I'm like, oh, my God. And then he had an Amiga 2000 and a, tra- and a toaster. I'm like, are you giving this? And he says, sure, take it, take it. So that was adding up to my project. I even bought, I bought a wall unit that was going to put all my old computers on and tidy them all up and make them all nice. And then that, turned into something else. <laughs> it just didn't happen. <laughs> so basically, years later, I end up going to Kenya, and then we have a shed filled with all these things. And so I needed to find a place for them. So I, I contacted Christian, and he came down, and we filmed us unearthing them out 
And literally, as I was pulling them out, that was me pulling them out for the first time. So what we were seeing in the video was was real. That was me literally pulling them out and the spiders and everything all over the place. And, and But I always meant, I never switched on the Amiga from, from, from Digital Domain. I never switched it on. I never did anything with it. So when I got it to Christian's, and and I was like, well, I, th- I knew it was used for motion control, and we switched it on. That was the first time it had been switched on in all that time. So, you know, um, it, it it was kind of amazing. It was an amazing moment. It was like, wait, the Apollo 13 stuff had been erased long ago, and this was Titanic stuff. And uh, and so a lot of people have come out from the woodwork of like, I wrote the code for that. And so many people have, have now come out and said, uh, thank God this is still alive. This is still, so he's extracted all that data off and it's now on the Amiga archive or the internet archive, I should say. And, uh, and it's available to everyone, which is just, I think, wonderful. Well, how did you make the move from Wakefield to working at Digital Domain, which is obviously for people who don't know, James Cameron um, founded that company, right, yeah. um, massive visual effects company. How did you get the job there and end up moving to LA then after Team 17? It, it was mental. So there'd been some other people um, that, were, that, were, that had kind of hit a kind of ceiling at, at, at Team 17, or so we thought at that time. You know, I mean, in retrospect, Team 17's gone on to be really solid as a, as a company and, and done really, really well, which I, which I really admire. But at the time, I was kind of like, I want to do more. We were wanting to do more. John Allardyce, was, he, he's a director, and he wanted to do more. And he was, there was another guy called uh, Charlie Wallace, who's a graphics guy and a coder, I should say. And he's like, oh, I, I want to go to LA. I'm, I'm going to go there. And I'm like, huh. And it felt like there was, there was an idea of like, oh, you could, you could, don't, you could do this somewhere else? Is that allowed? <laughs> and so the, it was like being in a room of a house and then somebody opening up a door and going, you know, there's another room over here. And we're like, oh, I didn't see that door. So John left and he got a job at uh, Foundation Imaging. Actually, I think he went to Digital Domain first, and then he went to Foundation Imaging, and they did a whole bunch of stuff with uh, Roughneck Chronicles, uh, which is all Amiga-based and um, all uh, Lightwave-based, I should say. And then Charlie went off, and he went off coding. He went to work for Xbox and a whole bunch of things. And so basically, I thought, well, I, I, we always joked about um, um, John and I would watch uh, Apollo 13, and we just loved that movie. And it's like, well, who's the company that did that? digital domain i'm like huh and then we keep on seeing demos coming out of like wow look at that what's that that's digital domain huh and then titanic came out and i'm like that's it it's digital domain what's that let's go there so basically i i i got a demo reel put together and i i put all my stuff together i made it into a little cool little edit which is still good it's still like oh that's all right it's got a lot of good stuff in it shows a lot of different things it had like a, a little intro and then it had a little quick intro that showed all my work together like a teaser and then I had the breakdown of each one showing who did what blah 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 and I got that converted and then I I I sent a whole bunch of these tapes NTSC tapes out to all the different companies out there I was basically I put out a, a demo reel to digital domain and didn't hear back and then I called them and didn't, and they said oh you have to contact our 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 human resources, our HR people, mm. and, that, and that's a dead end, right? Because they basically, I didn't realize this, they get two or 300 tapes per week back then. It was bananas. In between jobs at Digital Domain, you were looking at review tapes, and you're like, oh, kill me. It was awful, and it's a different story. But what happened was is I was standing in line to talk to the receptionist, and there was, quite, there was two or three people in front of me, and, um, and she said, all right, go there, da-da-da, you go there like that. And I got to the front, 
and I said, um, and I'd been speaking to this guy who was in the uh, who was in line, and he and he sneezed, and I went, "Oh, Gesundheit," and he goes, "Oh, are you German?" I said, "No, I'm Scottish," and he goes, "Oh, that's funny," and we just chatted a little bit, and um, and I got to the front, and I said to the receptionist, um, I called Andrea, and I said, "I'm here to see uh, Lawrence Plotkin, the head of HR," and she went, she looked at me, and she went, "Are you now? Do you have an appointment?" I went, "No, but can you maybe ask?" And she went, "Huh." Maybe you should ask him. I'm like, uh, what? And I turned around. And he goes, I'm Lawrence Plotkin, the guy that was behind me. <laughs> no way. <laughs> yeah. And he goes, and he looked at me up and down. He went, come on, like this. I went, yes. And then we went into this room and my video played and he looked down at the guy who was writing something. And then at the end of the, the intro, he looked up and he came up with a text explaining what was coming up next. He looked at that. And then as soon as the music, as soon as the next piece started, he looked down the way and I thought, oh, no. Oh, well, hey, I tried. It's good. You know what? It's good. I tried. It's fine. And then <laughs> the same thing happened every single time each sequence ended. He'd look up at, at the words where there was nothing there to look at. And then he got a phone call and he was talking to the phone. He was occasionally looking across. And then at the end of it, I went, all right, thank you very much. And I kind of reached out my hand and he went, oh, do you have to go? I said, well, I, I thought we were done here. And he goes, uh, no, I was calling to, for you to go and meet Mark Loaf and Eric Barba. I'm like, oh, okay. So I went and met this guy called um, Rob Legato and um, Mark Loaf and uh, Eric Barba. Eric Barba is the, now the visual effects supervisor. He, does, he did like the newest Terminator and all that kind of stuff. He's very, very high up at uh, ILM now. And, um, and Rob Legato was the visual effects supervisor for Titanic. And Mark Loaf was one of the CG supervisors there as well. So these were high-end people that I knew about. By the way, Eric Barba is the guy that did Sequest DSV with 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 uh, with uh, Steven Spielberg, like you know, all right. based on Amiga and Lightwave. And so when I met those guys, I knew who they were. And so uh, and they went and they looked at my video, and I, so they said, "We're going to go look at this video." And so the Martin and um, uh, Lawrence ejected the tape and went upstairs, and I sat down with these people. This is the first time I'm meeting these people. Like, hello, hello, hello. I'm glad you liked your Academy Award. Thank you very much. Right, and sat down. We watched the tape. So these guys are looking at my tape. I was sweating buckets. It was nuts. I was like, ah, this is good or bad. I can't tell. You know, I was petrified and excited at the same time. And they said, right, we want to offer you a job right now. I'm like, oh, well, I'll need a visa. And they, yeah, yeah, don't worry about it. We'll move you over from the UK. Just whatever you want. We'll get a shipping container. And I left that place. I was like, I came down the stairs, very calm. And I walked out to my car, very calm. And I got in my car and reversed and got out. And I stopped immediately outside with a rental car, outside the the premises of Digital Domain. And I screamed at the top of my voice, just like, ah! Like, I could not believe that it just happened. But I held it in until I got in my car and got out of that place because I couldn't believe it happened. They were like, they gave me a job on the spot. I was like, holy moly, this is it. That's truly amazing. Um, what are you up to nowadays then? Oh, my goodness. Okay, I've I've done a wee, I've done a few things. So so from from working at Digital Domain, I went from being a digital artist and then to be CG supervisor, which you look after sections of CG and there's other CG supervisors working on different parts of the same job. And then going up to being visual effects supervisor, where you're in charge of all the visual effects over one job. And then I started directing things there. So basically, at that point, then there was a company called Riot, which is now called Method Studios. And they kind of reached out to me and said, uh, hey, we'd like to give you a creative director position. I'm like, that sounds fantastic. 
but yeah, basically then I went to be I went to be a, visual, um, a creative director at Method, which was just fantastic. We did a bunch of different great commercials and tried a whole bunch of new technologies, which was really good fun. And then from there, I wanted to direct more, and I was still I was still working in the day to day doing visual effects supervision, and I just wanted to direct more. So uh, for a while, I just set off being a director, just doing directing, just directing mostly visual effects pieces. And at some points, I'd go back to Method to actually do the jobs, which was great. And then. Um, my wife decided <laughs> we what it was was my wife said, "Is this it? Is this what we're going to do? This is it." And I said, "Yeah, it's great." And she says, "No," because she was working in production. She's a producer, and she said, uh, "We're just going to do this, and we're going to make money, and then that's it." And I went, "Uh huh." She went, "No, I want to do more." She said, "We've got to be able to do something with what we do as as kind of creative people to 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 do something." And so she said, "I'm going to go and find something to do." And we tried two or three different things, but in the end, and we tried different things of giving back to the community locally in the States and doing different youth-based things, or trying to get people interested in filmmaking and community and stuff like that. And it, those worked, but they weren't really what we what worked well. But what we found was we found a lot of charities in, in Africa and in other marginalized, uh, you know, in, in like Tanzania and Uganda, Kenya, have like good causes, but they have horrible videos, those horrible like tummy with sad and the flies all it did is show fail so we came up with an idea of doing um documentaries for these charities that led us to going to the to africa for a lot and going back and forward so it worked like seven percent of the the year we'd work in the states doing work and building up enough money for us to take kind of three months off and going and doing that work in africa but we found going back and forward was was a pain and it took a, a, then it was like 40 60 then it was 50 50 and we realized that we like doing that so my wife wanted to find a project that would take us over there for a while. So we, re- we did a project for Southwest Airlines that was going to take us there to do some filming. And we'd do the whole thing. We'd figure out the story. We'd make it work. Nothing to do with computer graphics. Nothing to do with anything. We're just filmmakers out all on our own and we'd edit all this stuff. And it really, really worked really, really well. But then we got this gig doing a job for Southwest Airlines, and we were supposed to be there for two months. And then two months turned into six months, which turned into a year, which turned into eight years of being there <laughs> and working in Kenya and living in Kenya, my son growing up in Kenya. And so, but in the end, I ended up doing, we ended up building a studio, which we're, when you're doing visual effects for, for my own commercials, and then ended up doing visual effects for TV shows. And then we ended up building a studio, which then needed intros. And so, and so then I'm teaching other people to do kind of 3D stuff. And so before I know it, I'm doing a whole bunch of 3D and visual effects in Kenya. Well, Chris, it's been amazing to get a little insight and a little snapshot into your very, very, very impressive career. Thank you so much for coming on and uh, sharing your stories with us this week. We really appreciate your time. It's been an absolute pleasure, guys. Thank you.